electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour of the markets, your money, what the massive jobs miss means to all of that. We debate it with the Investment Committee this hour. And joining me today on this Friday, Shannon Sakosha is the Chief Investment Officer of Boston Private Wealth. Bryn Talkington, Managing Partner, Requisite Capital Management. Steve White, Pete Najarian, good to see everybody. Take you to the wall as we always do. Stocks are rallying. Jobs come in well below expectations. Rates falling. And now we're going to hear from the president, I'm told. So let's go to President Biden. I want to put today's jobs report in perspective. And uh, look, we came to office, we knew we were facing a once-in-a-century pandemic and a once-in-a-generation economic crisis. And we knew this wouldn't be a sprint, it'd be a marathon. Quite frankly, we're moving more rapidly than I thought we would. This morning, we learned that our economy created 266,000 jobs in April. It hadn't been adjusted again yet, but that's what it says, 266. And listening to commentators today, (laughs) as I was getting dressed, you might think that we should be disappointed. But when we passed the American Rescue Plan, I want to remind everybody, it was designed to help us over the course of a year, not 60 days, a year. We never thought that after the first 50 or 60 days, everything would be fine. Today, there's more evidence that our economy is moving in the right direction. But it's clear we have a long way to go. All told, our economy has added more than 1,500,000 new jobs since I took office. That's the most number of jobs created in the first three months of any presidency in our history. Just for perspective, in these three months before I got here, the economy added about 60,000 jobs a month, not a half a million. In the three months since I've been here, the economy has added 500,000 jobs per month. And this is progress. And it's a testament to our new strategy of growing this economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And it's a clear testament to why it's so needed. Some critics said that we didn't need the American American Rescue Plan, that this economy would just uh, heal itself. Today's report just underscores, in my view, how vital the actions we're taking are. Checks to people who are hurting, support for small businesses, for childcare and school reopening, support to help families put food on the table. Our efforts are starting to work, but the climb is steep and we still have a long way to go. Today's report also puts some, some truth to some loose talk that uh, we've been hearing about the economy lately. First, that we should stop helping workers and families uh, out for fear of overheating the economy. This report reinforces the real truth. For years, working people and middle-class people, the people who built this country, have been left out in the cold, 
struggling just to keep their heads above water. While those at the top have done very well, we're still digging out of an economic collapse that cost us 22 million jobs. Let me say that again. It cost us 22 million jobs. When we came in, we inherited a year of profound economic crisis and mismanagement on the virus. And we proposed, uh, and uh, what we propose is, is, is going to work. We're going to get to 70 percent. But anyway, but look, it's also going to take focus, commitment, and uh, time to get the economy moving again, as we want it to move. We've got work to do. And, the, and the, uh, to state uh, the obvious, we have work to do. But look, let's keep our eye on the ball. That's why the American Rescue Plan is so important. I said we build it as a year-long effort to rescue our country. It's already working. Eight weeks later, we passed, it was after it was passed, but parts of the bill are still getting underway. Here's one example. I know uh, you all know this, but uh, it's worth repeating. State and local governments have to balance their budgets. As a consequence of this pandemic, revenues are way down in cities and states. State and local governments had to, have, had to lay off 1.6 million employees. That's an awful lot of firefighters police officers, sanitation workers, essential workers. But later this month, we're going to be distributing the first tranche of the state and local assistance from the American Rescue Plan. We won't get all 1.6 million of those jobs back in one month, but you're going to start seeing those jobs and state and local workers coming back. Starting this month, we will also deliver assistance to tens of thousands, and as I notice every Republicans in our home state talking about this as being a good idea, tens of thousands of restaurants and bars across the country. And by the way, the majority of the jobs that have come back have been in the entertainment and in, 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 in those industries. In, in the, uh, and so, you know, we're going to help schools and children and child centers across the country as well accelerate reopening, and that's underway. So, look, this is going to, this is going to continue to improve. Today's report makes clear, thank goodness we passed the American Rescue Plan. Help is here, and more help is on the way, and more help is needed. Second, today's report is rebuttal, the loose talk that Americans just don't want to work. I know some employers are having trouble filling jobs, but what this report shows is that there's a much bigger problem notwithstanding the commentary you might have heard this morning. It is that our economy still has 8 million fewer jobs than when this pandemic started. The data shows that more, more workers, more workers are looking for jobs and many can't find them. While jobs are coming back, there's still millions of people out there looking for work. And the idea that they don't want to work, most middle-class, working-class people that I know think the way my dad did. He used to say, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm going to continue to because I think it's critical. A job is a lot more than a paycheck, he'd say, Joey. It's about your respect, your dignity, your place in the community. More than a paycheck is people's pride. It's about being able to look your child in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten those folks I grew up with. I think about them every day as president. They didn't have a lot of money. 
but they busted their necks their whole lives to take care of their families. And all they ever wanted was a shot, a fair shot of making it. Last month, there were 266,000 more Americans with dignity that comes for the job. And there are millions, millions of Americans out there who, through no fault of their own, have been knocked flat on their back this past year. The virus stole their jobs. And I'm determined to give them a fighting chance. That's why I've been so focused on vaccinating the nation and getting our economy running again. That's why we fought so hard to pass the American Rescue Plan. And again, the American Rescue Plan was for the whole year. It plays out over a year, and it's working. But we can't let up. This jobs report makes that clear. We've got too much work to do. And the American Rescue Plan is just that, a rescue plan. It's to get us back to where we were. But that's not nearly enough. We have to build back better. That's why we need the American Jobs Plan, I propose, to put us in a position where we can build back better, to reclaim our position as the leading and most innovative nation in the world and win the future, the 21st century. We need to rebuild the nation's roads and highways and bridges and ports and airports. We've got water systems all over the country that need repair. There are over 400,000 schools and daycare centers with lead pipes that, uh, the, where the, w w the water goes through. 10 million homes. I saw a water project uh, system uh, yesterday in New Orleans that was over 80 years old. It's in need of major, major overhaul. And by the way, if they don't get it fixed, New Orleans itself is in real trouble. They need reliable, affordable, high-speed internet throughout this country. Our businesses need to compete worldwide. Our rural communities need to be able to compete and make their own judgments as to when to buy and sell. And our kids need to succeed in school. As my wife Jill says, any nation that out-educates us is going to out-compete us. We also need to up our game in our education system. Twelve years of education in, the 20, in 2021 is not enough to compete in the 21st century. In my view, we need 16 years of public education guaranteed. In this country, from preschool for three- and four-year-olds at the early end to two years of community college after high school, we have some serious decisions to make and fundamental choices. And think about it. How much better off is the country if we have tens of thousands of graduating seniors from high school and beyond going to get two years of community college? Doesn't that increase our capacity significantly? This month's job numbers show we're on the right track. We still have a long way to go. As I said, my laser focus is on growing the nation's economy and creating jobs. My laser focus is on vaccinating our nation, and we're making continued progress. My laser focus is on one more thing, making sure working people in this country, hardworking people are no longer left out in the cold. They're going to get a share of the benefits of a rising economy. It's been a long time since that happened. I've called my plan the blue-collar blueprint for America. That's exactly what it is. So let's not let up. We're still digging our way out of a very deep hole we were put in. No one should underestimate how tough this battle is. 
We still have a job to do here in Washington. The American people are counting on us. So let's get it done. Let's build an economy that delivers dignity and gives everybody a chance. I'm confident we can do this because there's nothing beyond the capacity of the American people. I want to thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. Thank you very Mr. much. Mr. President, do you believe enhanced unemployment benefits had any effect on diminishing a return to work in some categories? No, nothing measurable. Thank you. And Mr. Mr. President, President, do you... On CDC mask, you walked out to the podium with your mask on. Why do you choose to wear a mask so often when you're vaccinated and you're around other people who are vaccinated? Because I'm worried about you. No, it's a joke. It's a joke. Why, why am I wearing the mask? Because when we're inside, it's still good policy to wear the mask. That's why. When I'm outside, and the problem is, lots of times I walk away from this podium, you notice, I forget to put my mask back on because I'm used to not wearing it outside. Mr. President, are you at all concerned about Vladimir Putin amassing troops on the border of Ukraine? Do you see that as a message to you? And could it impact your desire to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him? Does not impact my desire of the one-on-one -on -one meeting, and you notice he had more troops before. He's withdrawn troops. There's still troops amassed, but significantly less than he had a month ago. So you expect that? You expect that? Sorry, Mr. President, do you believe that the Iranians are serious about negotiation in Vienna? Yes, but how serious and what they're prepared to do is a different story. But we're still talking, sir. You had a question. I had to cut you yes, off. Do you have any update on whether you'll be able to meet Vladimir Putin in June? Is is that going to happen? I'm confident we'll be able to do it. We don't have any uh, a specific time or place. That's being worked on. Has he Thank agreed, you. sir? Thank you. Okay, that President Biden, of course, speaking about the jobs report today, 266,000, the big miss there, though the president saying he doesn't see it as a disappointment, offering that it's more evidence the economy is moving in the right direction, he said. There's still a long way to go and that the recovery itself is happening faster than we expected. He also did, as you heard there, offer a rebuttal to this notion that people are essentially being paid to stay home and don't want to work because of the enhanced unemployment benefits that are they, that they are receiving. He offered uh, a clear rebuttal to that in the first question you heard after his remarks saying there was, quote, nothing measurable in today's uh, jobs report. He said that report underscoring that people still need help. That also seems to be a direct response to the United States Chamber of Commerce today, suggesting that we end that $300 supplement to unemployed workers. Let's bring in Steve Leisman. He is our senior economics reporter, and that's going to be the big takeaway and what is the big, uh, I guess, battle going forward, Steve, about these benefits that unemployed workers are getting and their desire to come back into the workforce. Yeah, Scott, that's exactly right. And uh, a lot of economists right now scratching their head, trying to figure out if that's really the case. Let me give you uh, two sides of the argument here. The first is uh, we have the work week being a little longer. That also suggests trouble finding workers for what that's worth. Part time moving into full time. That suggests trouble finding workers. At the same time, Scott, if you look at the uh, influx into the workforce in the past two months now, we've about three quarters of a million people come back into the workforce. It's still short of the three plus million who remain out of the workforce, but that suggests that maybe the benefits are not having that big an effect. The other thing though, that's a bit of a huge head scratcher, Scott, on this is, how do you explain away the other data that shows, first of all, strong employment in a lot of other indicators, including some of the high frequency data, but also 
Look at where the jobs were lost. Manufacturing? Have you heard one negative manufacturing report that's out there? That doesn't explain the decline in manufacturing, the decline in retail, uh, and the decline in transportation. None of that makes very much sense to me. That courier is down 77,000. The leisure and hospitality, that makes sense to me. But you hear all of this reopening out there, Scott. So I'm a little puzzled by this report. I'm willing to, I, I think it was. Um, Jan Hatzius from Goldman, who said, not just a grain of salt, but take this one with a rock of salt, and let's see what happens next month when all of a sudden, when, when very quickly now, a lot of economists are expecting that big jobs number. We're, we're obviously watching the stock market, which is higher across the board, uh, more likely on the notion that, okay, let's stop the taper talk, and this may embolden the Fed to say, see, this is why the policy is what it is, and this is why I, Jay Powell, keep saying I'm not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates, and I'm not thinking about tapering at all. So we're back to the bad news on the job front, if you want to accept it as bad news, is good news for the stock market because the Fed's not going to do anything anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. I think the risk today, Scott, and I think what's coming out of the market is that concern, that risk that you were going to get a strong number. You were going to have all kinds of strong data inside it. And that was going to accelerate the conversation at the Fed. Maybe they drop one of their thinking about thinking about to just thinking about tightening policy. Uh, but now that's off the table. And I think this allows the Fed, I think you're right, it's a little bit of a victory lap from Powell's See, I told you why we need to go slow here. Uh, but also allows them to stick to their schedule, which is they want to, I begin thinking about tightening policy sometime this summer, maybe announce that they're going to reduce QE sometime in the fall and do so in 2022. Un unless, and the flip side of that, Steve, is maybe what no one wants to talk about or people are starting to talk about is that fiscal policy is too loose and the Fed doesn't have control anymore and that it's it's not just monetary policy that the Fed can control. It's going to potentially be guided by fiscal policy, which some suggest is way too loose and it's going to force the Fed's hand because it's going to cause more inflation. And the jobs number suggests it's exactly what the problem is. Wages are going to have to go up to entice people to come back to work. That's going to force the Fed to do something it doesn't want to do. Scott, I have a lot of sympathy for that line of thinking, but you have to own it a little bit, Scott, and say that the bond market has this exactly wrong. If you think about what you just said, if getting people into the workforce is the problem and the answer is higher wages and the result of that is more inflation, you would expect the bond market to be driving up yields and not down yields, which is what happened today. Um, I've, I, I think it could be the market has that wrong or the market sees what I suggested, which is the idea that the risk of a Fed acting sooner has come out of the market somewhat. Yeah, well, the market is reacting certainly to the latter of, of your suggestion there. Steve, we appreciate it. Yeah, as always. That's, right. that's Steve Leisman, though. Thanks. Let's bring in uh, our panel as well. I said I had Shannon Sakosha on today, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss and Pete Nigerian. Steve, is that what this is today in the market? It's OK. We can stop talking about taper tantrums for a moment because this shows that the economy still needs a lot of help. And so do people. Look, Steve is, uh, is given one view, 
I take the other view. I think today's jobs number was an anomaly. In fact, the 10-year yield is now up 10 bips after really trading down knee-jerk. We've seen these kind of aberrational jobs reports before. My focus is on wages, which are up 0.7 versus success being down 0.1. You have to average these employment reports on a three-month basis, not look at it at one shot and say, that's it. Futures were up, and they were up nicely before the market opened, before the jobs number came out. So look, if you're basing your investment strategy on today's jobs report, you're making the wrong move. We've come through earnings. We saw earnings were phenomenal. We saw virtually every economic report, except this one, again, except for wages higher, showing that the economy is booming. So what this is giving you, and what I took the opportunity to do, is add to sickle exposure on this. So it's lifting tech today a little bit, but don't base it on a one-day referendum on the jobs report. Your strategy that you had going into today was the right strategy. It shouldn't change. Well, period, end of story. Shannon, the strategy for many coming in was get out of, of high-growth tech and go into the recovery and reopening stocks because they're the ones that are going to benefit from a cyclical boom unlike any that we have ever seen in our collective lifetimes. Right. And so perhaps some of that enthusiasm has been deflated a bit by this jobs number. I, I agree. I think the story is somewhere in between um, the two Steves here. I think that there is uh, there are portions of the economic recovery on the employment side that will be choppy. Um, I do think that there is room in your portfolio for both some of these reopening trades, as well as some of the names that have worked historically. I think the most important thing to note here from an economic standpoint is who's running the show. President Biden and Janet Yellen had a, front, had a front row view of the lack of fiscal stimulus in 2010 and 2011 that created a very long tail for the growth recovery after the financial crisis. Shifting ahead, we should be talking about not only a Fed overshoot, but also a fiscal overshoot. And I think that there's a lot of support for that. I think that we're going to continue to see some missteps and, and, and some steps back in economic data. But overall, this is going to ease some of the pressure we've seen, Scott, over the last couple of weeks about the sell in May and go away on this strong economic data. We're still going to see some consolidation and weakness, in my view, on the back half of May. But I think that this takes a little bit of this rotational wind out of the sale. When you say things like fiscal overshoot and Fed overshoot, I, I think, Pete, of, you know, asset bubbles being inflated, perhaps <laughs> too much so before we realize exactly this monster that we've created by both of these policies being full throttle pedal to the metal for such a long period of time. Yeah, and, and Scott, I, I think the important part here is that we're talking about inflation and, and everybody's touched on this, but the, the wage inflation as well. And I mean, the, the reality is this, that you can go out anywhere in the country right now, and it's very, very difficult for everybody to be able to be in, in the employment area right now because of the fact that they're still in this mode of maybe there's still some fear, but also the idea that, hey, look, they're making money at home. Are we, are we giving those incentives to stay at home? I mean, there's a lot of great questions here, but I'm with Steve in terms of this is one number, and I don't think you can take everything away from just this one single number right now. I think you've got to see the smoothing process of what's exactly going on. But one of the things that we absolutely know is we have seen this shift 
from a lot of these high multiple names, and you can go down the entire list and you can see where they were, Scott, even call it two months ago. But let's go back to February, and you can look at a very almost every one of these names that we, we refer to as the high multiple or maybe even no multiple stocks, and those stocks have come down dramatically. I don't think that's over. I think we're going to see more and more of that, and we're starting to see the fundamentals becoming much more important in this market. And I'm not just talking about financials or industrials or energy or materials. I'm even talking within tech, and we're seeing it within tech right now where you're seeing those that have great fundamentals, they've got great balance sheets, and they still do have growth. Those are the names that are outperforming right now, and those are the names that I think will continue to outperform in the next couple of months. So you bought Pete Lockheed Martin shares today, right? We're talking stock, not calls. Uh-huh. Right. And it wasn't today, Scott. I want to clarify that. That was actually on Monday I, bu I bought this stock. And one of the reasons I bought this stock is I started looking at the fundamental story behind here. Here's a company that if you in the last five years, annually, their earnings are growing close to 20 percent. Their revenues growing over 10 percent. This is a company that just got a brand new CEO. They seem to rotate on a, almost a schedule, Scott, about five to six years and a new CEO comes in. But the discipline of those CEOs, what they've been able to do with that, with the incredible amounts of money that they are generating, that they're able to put in their pockets. Well, they're not just putting them in their pockets. The money that they're, they're generating right now, about $6 billion, they use that in a lot of different ways. They've brought down their debt. They've bought shares. They've bought companies. They've done a lot of really, really smart things. And you take a look at Lockheed Martin right now, still trades at about a 13 or a 14 PE. So we're talking about a company that still has plenty of upside, in my opinion, going forward. Right. And I don't see them getting cut back by the government or anybody else in okay. terms of a lot of the contracts that they've got in aerospace I, and defense. I bring that up just to mention it's a new stock that you bought. Okay, you bought it on Monday. Thank you for clarifying that. I, yep. I do it because it's yep. not in the tech space. Bryn, you bought the XLE. You bought Kinder Morgan. You bought Norwegian Cruise Lines. All of these obviously cyclical plays built right into a, a, a strengthening and more open economy. Says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think you have to remember as an investor, you have to trade for the market you have, not for the market you want. And, you know, with Kinder and XLE, I was adding to those positions as well as Norwegian Cruise Lines. I think it's important though right now is I feel like we have four really distinct markets. You have the crypto market, you have the high multiple no PE stocks. Um, crypto is doing fantastic. The high multiple no PE stocks are down 30 to 50 to 60 percent, some of those names. You have blue chip tech. And then you have, we'll say, the value cyclical names. And so I'm continue, continuing to lean into um, that right bookend of those value cyclical names, own a lot of blue chip, own crypto. But I think, you know, really where you're seeing the pain trade is in these, once again, the Zooms of the world. There's so many of those names that are, that are literally down 50 to 60%. And I think that trade of those four, those four pillars is gonna continue throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, but I do wanna say one thing though, it's important. I think with the jobs data today, it's definitely, I agree with Steve and everybody else, it's just one data point. But I think as an investor today, as an asset allocator myself, I feel like this time is different, which are the, you know, we'll say the four dangerous words, to, most dangerous words to say, because what you have here with fiscal and monetary policy, I mean, as of April 21st, fiscal and monetary policy has been 57% of US GDP. 
And so I think when Shannon talks about an overshoot of, you know, not only monetary, but fiscal policy, and we're just getting started, it seems. And I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of unintended consequences from all of this, you know, rocket fuel we're seeing from monetary and fiscal, right. which seems no, 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 no sign of abating. So I'm nervous just because I feel like this time is different. So you know, bonds are a terrible investment, so we're going to stay in stocks. And we want to, like, look at those four pillars and say, where do we want to lean into? But I think as an investor, you have to understand we are experimenting here with monetary and fiscal policy. Well, that's, I think, the, the point that we were making with Steve Leisman as well. Let's bring in our headliner to begin our conversation, Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel, last with us earlier this early, earlier last month and said we were in the third or fourth inning of the boom. Professor, good to see you again. Where are we today? The the market is what? The S&P is up three, almost four percent since then. New records for the Dow, new records for the S&P. Have we jumped ahead a couple of innings? What do you make of everything? Yeah, we have. Yeah, maybe in the sixth now. Uh, That was quick. I I mean, my, my interpretation is these low numbers really show the difficulty of firms trying to get jobs. Um... Not that there isn't enough demand out there for, for jobs. And, and I, I, I disagree with the president uh, that uh, the unemployment insurance is not having some effect on, 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 on not taking the jobs. So I think that, and take a look at that, that wage number, which I think Pete also talked about. I mean, seven-tenths of 1% is a huge increase in, in, in wage, one of the biggest increases we had. And we still couldn't induce enough uh, workers so, I mean, I, I'm really looking I'm next Tuesday and Wednesday, we're going to get inflation picture on the consumer and producers. I think those are very important because I, I really think that, you know, for the month of uh, May and June, um, we're going to be getting to see the inflation that's going to come from this uh, prodigious well, monetary and fiscal well, now, now you're talking about exactly what I was talking to, to Leisman about, about this notion, which I'm hearing from people, market participants today in the, in the buildup to preparing for, for the show, that forget of all this talk about monetary policy being too loose. It's fiscal policy that's too loose. And that's going to lead to a problem for the Fed that it doesn't want to have to deal with. And that is talk about wages having to go up to entice people back into the workforce, a job market that is still hurting tremendously, which is why it doesn't want to do anything. But then inflation starts to rise. Wages start to rise. It becomes a more permanent problem. And the Fed has to act even though it doesn't want to act. And that's bad for stocks. Eventually, it's bad for stocks. But, uh, you know, this this report delays, in my opinion, the de- the so-called day of reckoning. Uh, it gives the, the Fed excuse, oh, no, we got to go longer with uh, this expansionary policy. I mean, there will be a day of reckoning down the road. But then how did, uh, wait, wait, wait. no question Let me Let me that. stop you for a second. How, how then have we gone from the third or fourth inning to the sixth in a month then, if, if this is not a problem then? Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I still I, I think we're moving along. I think later this year we're going to get that that uh, really Fed pullback. The market's going to ripple and act scared and then also say, where am I going to go? You know, I did say I believe in the next three, four years, cumulatively, we're going to have 20 percent inflation. Price is going to be 20 percent higher three years from now, four years from now than they are today. And that, you know, could mean stock prices, wages, consumer prices, and the bonds are gonna be the worst thing. Real assets are gonna be the best thing. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. 
the fiscal policy. That's what's putting the money in people's pockets is, is the government. The Fed is creating it and putting it right into people's pockets to spend. Um, and uh, that's that's what's going to uh, really explode onto the economy second half of this year. So then that tells uh, me that I want to stay there. It's hard to say, uh, but they will have to pull back. But then again, people are going to say, where am I going to go? But but that tells me that I <clears throat> excuse me, I want to stay in economically sensitive and cyclical names, restaurants yes. and travel yes. and all this I stuff agree. where people are going to spend that money you just talked about. Exactly. I would stay there. I, I mean, we get a little bounce back in, in tech, I think, because yields did fall down, although, you know, they did come back up. Professor, relief, forgive me. I think it's temporary. I'll come back to you in a moment. I'm going to go to the White House because uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is now speaking. I spent a few minutes on the state of our labor market. When our administration took office, our economy was in a state of crisis. Our most pressing concern was providing a lifeline for Americans suffering under the weight of the pandemic. Our solution was the American Rescue Plan, which the President signed back in March. It was designed to provide enough relief for Americans to make it to the other side of the pandemic with the foundations of their lives intact, providing nutrition for hungry families, rental assistance for those at risk of eviction, and a lifeline for businesses on the brink. We knew it would be a long road back to recovery. That's why the legislation provided lasting support rather than just a few months of relief. We knew this would not be a 100-day battle. And today's jobs report underscores the long-haul climb back to recovery. But let me be clear. The 266,000 jobs added in April represent continued progress. We've added an average of over half a million jobs during the past three months. And we saw a promising growth of 331,000 jobs in leisure and hospitality, which includes the restaurants and bars that have been so badly battered by this pandemic. We should also be encouraged by the ongoing expansion of the labor force. It's a promising sign of our economy winning out over the pandemic. Last month, the labor market expanded as more people reported they are looking for work. Hours are increasing, and the share of workers forced into part-time jobs is declining. Indeed, we've made remarkable progress. After all, one year ago, we learned we'd lost over 20 million jobs in one single month. I believe we will reach full employment next year. But today's numbers also show that we're not yet finished. As our economy continues to heal, it's important to consider ways in which we can build back better. And one of those ways is removing barriers to higher labor market participation. Even though we're seeing sustained job growth now, more jobs ultimately will require more individuals to participate in the labor market. As you know, the top line unemployment rate you see doesn't include the many millions of Americans who are not seeking work. And progress here is critical. 
When I first came to Washington in the early 90s, a higher percentage of American women worked than almost any other developed nation. Out of the 22 wealthiest countries, we ranked sixth in labor force participation. By 2010, America fell to 17th. By the eve of the pandemic, women's labor force participation was hovering somewhere near where it had been in the late 80s and early 90s. Male labor force participation has fared even worse. A smaller percentage of men are working now than at any point in the last 70 years. There are many drivers of these trends. But as my colleagues at the Council of Economic Advisors have pointed out, an undeniable one is a lack of support for people as they raise children and care for older relatives. Our policymaking has not accounted for the fact that people's work lives and their personal lives are inextricably linked. And if one suffers, so does the other. The pandemic has made this very clear. Between February and April of 2020, 4.2 million women dropped out of the labor force, in large part due to an unexpected caregiving burden. Nearly 2 million have not yet returned. The challenge before us is to help these 2 million women to return to the labor market, but to help the millions of other workers who left prior to the pandemic to do the same. It's a core reason that last week President Biden proposed the American Families Plan. The plan offers up to $8,000 to pay for childcare and make sure kids from lower income families can attend for free. It offers universal pre-K to three and four year olds and it provides up to 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. With today's jobs numbers, I'm confident we will have a strong, prosperous economy this year and in 2022. But what about the rest of the decade and the years beyond? Our country's long-term economic health depends on whether we invest in American families and workers, and I'm very hopeful we will. Let me stop there, and I'd be glad to take some questions. Alex. Uh, so President Biden suggested that the increase in employment benefits have not affected the jobs report, but the Chamber of Commerce and some business leaders are arguing that it's easier for people to stay home to receiving more money than they would for them to go back to work. Uh, so what's your response? How do you explain the slowdown in hiring that we saw in this uh, jobs report? And is there talk about reducing that unemployment benefit in the future to get people back, in the world, back to work? So first of all, I'd note that the jobs report is a little bit stronger than the headline numbers might suggest on the hiring front. Um, the number of people working part-time um, for economic reasons, namely involuntary part-time work, that number declined by 600,000. And hours, average hours of work ticked up by a tenth. So that means that an extra margin in which in which employers are um, able to boost their uh, labor is by 
uh, adding to hours of existing employees and that those employees want that extra work. They were involuntarily working part-time. You know, the labor market is volatile from month to month, and I think the best thing is to average through um, and say we've been creating over 500,000 jobs a month uh, on average over the last three months. Um, look, but it, you know, it's clear that there are people who are not ready and able to go back into the labor force. Um, many children are back in school, school, but not on a regular schedule. Um, it's a challenge for parents to manage schedules where one child is in school a couple of days a week and another child is in, in school some different days during the week. So caregiving responsibilities um, and absence of child care are still important reasons why people are unable to return to work. Um, you know, concern about um, the pandemic and the health consequences, I think, remains a factor for many. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the additional uh, the addition to unemployment compensation is really the factor that's making a difference. There's no question that we're hearing from businesses that um, they are having difficulty hiring workers, although over 300,000 workers, I'd point out, were added this last month in leisure and hospitality, which is the most badly affected sector. But, you know, when we look across states or across sectors or across workers, and it, if it were really the extra benefits that were holding back hiring, you'd expect to see that in either in states or for workers or in sectors where the replacement rate due to UI is very high, you'd expect to see lower job finding rates. And in fact, what you see is the exact opposite. You know, We've had a very unusual hit to our economy, and the road back is going to be somewhat bumpy. We have to expect that. There are a variety of bottlenecks that are also relevant. So um, we've seen uh, motor vehicle production shut down in some places because of a shortage of semiconductors. Uh, there was a loss of jobs there this month. There were setbacks in the lumber industry because of shortages there. So, you know, starting up an economy again, trying to get it back on track after a pandemic in which there are a lot of supply bottlenecks is going to be, I think, a bumpy process. But I, I really don't think the major factor is the extra unemployment. Go, go ahead, Were you surprised, Madam Secretary, about the number? Because we've heard so much about a pent-up demand, a desire to get back. We've seen vaccinations rise. And we know that some of the funding in relief packages targeting businesses is in the bloodstream now. So were you surprised by the number? And how much of a uh, change would you anticipate as the summer season and the reemergence continues? Well, I believe that we're going to the recovery will remain on track. And it may be bumpy from month to month for a variety of factors. You know, there are often quite large revisions uh, to months as well. Um, there was data two days uh, before this, the um, ADP data that suggested over 700,000 
um, jobs would be created, um, unemployment insurance claims had gone down. So um, if I had had to write down a number is my best guess, it would have been higher. But I've watched data for a long time, and I know that it is extremely volatile. There are often surprises and temporary factors, and one should never take one month's data as an underlying trend. Besides, remember I said the, 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 the actually what happened is stronger, I think, than the headline number looks. And do you, see the, do you see the relief money in the bloodstream of the economy now making a difference? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we saw very robust spending, consumer spending, um, in the first quarter of the year. Uh, the stimulus checks getting out there stimulated a surge in spending. We're seeing services um, begin to pick up from very low levels. I think there's absolutely no question in my mind that uh, the money that the ARP has put out there and will continue to put out there in the coming months is going to boost spending. And as things open up um, with further success with vaccinations and the pandemic, um, people are going to go back to um, eating out and traveling and doing all the things that they did. And I, I, I absolutely expect to see continued progress in the economy. It's probably bumpy. And there is you know, look, we're still down net 8.2 million jobs from where we were in February of 2020. That is a big hole. And we're going to hit back, but, you know, it's going to take a little while. Thanks, Jen. Madam Secretary, what's your advice then to the employers who say they are having difficulty hiring workers? Uh, one suggestion has been made to perhaps raise wages, but if businesses have to compete with plus up unemployment benefits, won't that result in an increase in consumer prices and touch off an inflationary cycle that so many experts have been worried about? Well, I, I really doubt that we're going to see an inflationary cycle, although I will say that all the economists in the administration are watching that very closely. As um, my colleagues have said, the CEA put, put out a blog post on this, we expect somewhat higher inflation over the next several months for a variety of essentially technical reasons because of something called base effects that in year-over-year -year comparisons right now, um, the months in which prices fell the most are moving out of the average, and that leaves us with the, number, with the months in which they were rebounding toward more normal levels. But um, that's, that's a transitory thing, not something that's associated with a buildup in wage, in wage pressures. I mean, with respect to wages, um, the best data that we have suggests that wage growth has really not picked up meaningfully. Um, and in areas where you do see some pickup, for example, this month in services, there was a, um, a, a pickup in wages. But still, that's an area where wages actually fell at the beginning of the pandemic, and you know we're seeing a revival, not back yet up to normal levels. So, you know, in in areas where wages are more flexible, they fell a fair amount. As we, the economy revised, we expect to see a return to more normal levels. But I don't think we're seeing meaningful upward pressure. Um, 
through throughout much of the economy, but we'll watch that very carefully. Madam Secretary. So, uh, well, I was going to call on you, Slay. Go ahead. Uh, Madam she's have to, sorry, she's going to have to be the last one, and she's always welcome back anytime. I think it's safe to speak for all of you. Go ahead. Madam Secretary, is there any more that you can share on how long Treasury's extraordinary measures on the, uh, uh, extending the debt limit may last? There were some comments yesterday from the agency, but if there's anything more you can share on that. So what, all I can really tell you is that the debt ceiling comes back into effect on July 31st, and there are a series of so-called extraordinary measures that are ordinary in the sense that they've been used many times in the past. But it is exceptionally challenging this time to try to figure out just how long those measures are going to last in part because of higher and more volatile um, spending and revenue numbers associated with the state of the economy and the pandemic. So we have evaluated a range of scenarios, and um, we are concerned that there are scenarios that um, would give a very limited amount of additional um, time through the use of extraordinary measures, but I can't really be more precise than that. Into October or further? I'm just saying there, there are scenarios in which, um, so, you know, sometime during the summer, um, we would, the extraordinary measures would run out. Thank you, Secretary Yellen, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Okay, that was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, reacting to today's jobs report, just coming right after President Biden spoke on the very same topic, what really is a full court press on the idea that today's report, albeit a miss, wasn't a disappointment, but more signs of progress. She also, of course, did rebut the idea, as did the president, that these enhanced unemployment benefits are having an impact on the labor market. Last comment with Professor Siegel. She also doesn't agree with you. Professor Siegel, I, I really don't think we're going to see an inflationary cycle is what Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, just said. You think we are? Uh, we'll see, Scott. Let me just point out the 10-year yield is now above where it was before the employment report comes out. So um, I think the market's going to show it later. I think they're talking their book and their story, but um, I think inflation is in the works. All right. You go do what you have to do. I appreciate you spending some time with us for certain. I'll see you soon, I hope. We'll see what inning we're, we're in the next time uh, we see you on this program. Jeremy Siegel. We'll take a quick break. Coming up next, Steve Weiss has a new buy. Shannon's making moves. We'll tell you what they are next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. I mentioned we have some interesting moves being made by the committee today. Shan, I come to you first. It really goes to the top of our conversation. You added to Netflix. Tell me. I did. I, we're not, it's not done a lot, Scott, but I, you know, trend this position a couple times over the last couple of years, and I feel like there's going to be some winners and losers in content, and I think Netflix is going to be a long-term winner. I think it's a great time to add, particularly with international subs picking up. Okay. Steve Weiss, you bought Dow. Uh, interesting. You're in Boeing again for what you claim is a trade. What a fascination you have with Boeing and trading it. XPO Logistics. <laughs> 
You got that, Pete. <laughs> Moderna, Corvo, Skyworks, which got smoked the other day, too. I was thinking about you when you were posting your push-up videos. Lionel Bazell, <laughs> Volkswagen. Tell me about all these. Inquiring minds want to know. So, Dow, I want to be more in the sickle uh, space. Done well with, with Lionel, which I added to. Great quarter. Dow's got a 4% yield. And I think the chart looks great, and it's very cheap. Volkswagen gets no love. They increased production the first quarter by 16%. They sold 130,000 EVs. They're going to sell over half a million this year. Tesla only sold 180,000 last quarter. At less than six times earnings, this is just a compelling buy right here. In terms of XPO, great quarter as well. Stock split in two. It's going to go much higher. Uh, Skyworks, we saw Carvo blew it out in the quarter. Two billion buyback. Put people to hopefully a little safer, they feel, in these stocks. They're going quite well. And I also sold Vulcan VMC. Hit my price target. Too expensive here. I sold TPIC. I bought and sold Teladoc puts. Uh, with a nice gain. So I'm trying to get away from stocks that are overvalued, go to more reasonable valuations while getting a hold of the cyclical play that I continue to see happening. All right. Farmer Jim on his tractor with his AirPods, I'm sure, is listening. Cleveland Cliffs, you bought more of as well. You just couldn't resist. <laughs> it was below 20. And Boeing was at 229. How can you not buy it for a trade? And I'll sell to Jim at 250. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trade next. <laughs> What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, guys, let's do final trades. Bryn, what do you have for me? Um, SVAL, it's a small cap value factor-based ETF. Focuses on high quality, low valuation, small cap stocks. Okay, thank you. Shan? American Tower, AMT, the infrastructure renaissance is upon us, so make sure you've got some exposure. Okay, Pete Nigerian. I bought some Novavax during the show, some calls, and I like what I'm seeing there, Scott. I think the stock's going higher. Okay, Steve Weiss. Sell it by Moderna, two and a half times sales, eight billion in cash, and five times earnings. And they already said they won't enforce the patent laws in October of last year. Sell it, Pete, by Moderna. I'm helping you. 
again. (laughs) Have a good weekend, everybody. You as well. Thanks so much for watching The Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.